Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, and we'll read through Jonah chapter 2, verse 10. And the reason for that is because the chapter numbers and the verses were not inputted into the original text. It was all just one thing. Later on, us as men and women, we put into the text the numbers and verses. And so the chapter breakup isn't the best here. So we're going to start at verse 17 and read through verse 10. And it says, Now the Lord prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the, bellies, from the fish's belly. And he said, I cry out to the Lord because of my affliction. And he has answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the floods surround me. Your billows and your waves pass over me. And then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Yet, I will look again toward your holy temple. The water surrounded me, even to my soul. The deep closed around me. The weeds were wrapped around my head. I went down into the moorings of the mountains, and the earth with its bars closed behind me forever. Yet, you have brought me up you have brought up my life from the pits, O Lord, my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer went up to you in your holy temple. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. So the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Just a recap for those uh, that haven't been with us. In chapter 1, we see that Jonah gets a message from God and says, Hey, I want you to go preach to the Ninevites, this wicked civilization. It was the capital of Assyria. And he goes, I want you to preach against their wickedness. And Jonah, what did he do? How did he respond to God's mission? He actually said no and ran in the opposite direction. Nineveh was east and Jonah went west on the sea in disobedience. And the Lord responded by sending a massive storm. Now, the storm was just the first part of God's discipline for Jonah not being obedient. The second part comes in verse 17 of chapter 1. And this is where God really breaks Jonah. And Jonah comes to the end of himself. And if you remember, Jonah was running because he didn't want to see the Ninevites saved. He didn't want to see them know God is the true and living God. And God sends a fish. I bet you as Jonah was thrown overboard by the other sailors on the board, on the ship, I bet you Jonah expected to die. 
but God had some different plans. In verse 17, the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. Just as God sent this massive storm towards Jonah, God had prepared a fish and sent the fish to swallow Jonah. Now, the question that everybody thinks is, I always heard it's Jonah and the whale. So is it a whale or is it a fish? And does it even really matter? Well, there are a lot of different types of whales, right? You got your blue whale, you got your killer whale, you got a uh, beluga. Does anybody know the song, Baby Beluga? Yes? Okay, cool. Um, And you got all these different types of whales. These are massive creatures. And the sperm whale, which was in a, has an enormous mouth and throat and stomach. It's something to take into consideration because not every whale can possibly digest a human or swallow a human. Some whales actually have a small throat or a small mouth. But this specific whale, the sperm whale, had a massive mouth, mouth throat, and stomach. An average specimen of the sperm whale might have had his mouth might have been 20 feet long, 15 feet high, and 9 feet wide. Think about that for a second. The mouth of a whale, 20 feet long, 15 feet high, and 9 feet wide. That's crazy. That's larger than some people's bedrooms. (laughs) And so this whale was huge. And the sperm whale also, they have records of sperm whales wandering their way through the Mediterranean Sea. So it is probable that it might have been this sperm whale that swallowed Jonah. But the question arises, can a man really survive in a whale? Come on, let's be real. Can a human being survive in a whale's stomach? Well, according to the Botanica article of the Encyclopedia, They say yes. They said it will be very uncomfortable, though, because it would be a tight space. There would be enough air for somebody to breathe in the stomach because the whale needed to stay afloat. Also, the heat of the stomach inside. I don't know if you guys like jacuzzis. I have a jacuzzi at my house, and I, I love going in it sometimes. And when I was in Bible college, they had this thing called the Roman jacuzzi, and it was like a massive donut, and it can fit over like 100 people in it. It was awesome. And it was so hot that you had to slowly inch your way in. And so I like the jacuzzi to be like at 101 or 102. It's just enough where it's like super hot where you have to inch your way in, and then you have to have like some water with you. The stomach of the whale would get up to 104 or possibly even higher to 108. So it was super hot within the stomach of a sperm whale. And not only that, you would also have to deal with the unpleasant contact of the animal's intestinal juices. That just sounds gross, right? The stomach acids inside of the whale. And this would definitely affect the skin, eating the skin slowly, but not completely. So they say it's possible. Now, has there ever been a case 
outside of the Bible where a man or somebody or a living animal survived in a whale? Well, there was one case, a voyage that actually a bunch of um, men, they were, their job was to, they were whale hunters. They would uh, hunt down whales, and at the bottom of South America, they launched the ship. And as they spotted one sperm whale, they sent out two smaller ships to go get it. One ship tried to harpoon and missed, and so he harpooned again and finally pierced the sperm whale. The other ship tried to do the same thing, but then got capsized, and the men fell out of the boat. One man drowned, and the other man, by the name of James, they couldn't find it all. And so they take, they capture the whale finally, bring him to the side of the boat, and start cutting it up, the blubber, because they would sell that to other people. And a day later, they threw the the giant sperm whale onto the deck and was cutting open the stomach and all of a sudden that sailor James comes out of the stomach of the sperm whale unconscious but still alive and soon later after he was revived like or not revived but uh, gained consciousness and was back to health he actually started working again so this actually took place in 19 or sorry 1891 this is actually an article that was written and it actually did take place and so when people say oh the, the story of jonah is too crazy to believe humans can't get swallowed by a whale certain whales yes but the sperm whale yes we could get swallowed by it and so it just goes to show you that the Bible is always right. And science will always back up the Bible. And if science is not backing up the Bible, then the science is wrong. Because God's word is never wrong. God's word actually proved that the world was round before man did. God's word has proved time and time again things in our world, scientifically speaking, that are correct in science just backs up the word of God and history as well. And so Jonah is in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So the actual Hebrew word for fish just means massive uh, monster animal, fish animal basically thing. And so we don't really know what it was, but it's very likely it could have been the sperm whale. And Jonah was in there for three days and three nights. I wonder, I wonder what it was like. Was there any light? Did he get a glowing jellyfish visiting him in this, the belly of this fish or this whale? And he's, he sees this jellyfish, but it's stinging him also at the same time. Sperm whales are also known to digest complete and whole squids. That's how big their mouths are. So was there another squid in there as he's like in the stomach? Like, and he's just like in the squids, like sucking his face. Like, I, we don't know. But it says that he was in the belly of the fish and weeds or seaweed was wrapped around him. Now, you might be thinking, God sent this fish to do that? Why, why would God send a fish to swallow one of his servants? Somebody that he loves and cherishes. 
Well, the purpose of God's discipline when he disciplines his children is to bring them to a place of conviction and confession of sin. When he disciplines, he's trying to bring them to a place of conviction and confession of sin. And the fact that he does discipline proves that he loves us. If you don't believe me, check out Hebrews chapter 12 and read the whole chapter. And it's because that we are his children that he does discipline us. And this actually does lead Jonah to conviction and confession of sin. In verse 1 of chapter 2, it wasn't until three days and three nights have passed that Jonah finally prayed to the Lord his God from the fish's belly. My first question is, what took so long? (laughs) Why would you wait three days and three nights until crying out to God? As soon as the storm hit and everyone thought they were going to die on board, I would have been crying out to God. Or as the men threw me over into the sea. Or as soon as all of a sudden I felt like this mouth swallowing me alive, I would have cried out to God instantly, Lord, help me. Jonah didn't do that. Why? Because he was stubborn. That's how stubborn Jonah was. And often it takes time for God to break people he wants to use. See, I I believe we too are stubborn people. And you see, even Israel's history, God called them stiff-necked. That means stubborn, not moving. I'm not sure if you've ever had a stiff neck. You slept on it wrong, and you all of a sudden woke up, and you could only like turn like this. And you're like, hey, Mom, how's it going? And you couldn't move like that. I had that last year. Um in June, I literally could see my, one of the discs in my neck bulging in the mirror. It was like out of place. It was gross. And so I went to the chiropractor and he had to adjust me once and I had to come in three days later and adjust me again. But when God says, you are stiff-necked people, he's saying you are stubborn. And Jonah, who also represents the people of Israel, is a stubborn individual. And we too can be stubborn just like Jonah. But if we want to be used and further used by God, we have to be broken. And when those times come, when we are broken, it's not fun, but it is the healthiest experience of our lives because it causes us to cry out to the Lord. Now, what does that brokenness look like? It's different for each one of us. Each one of us have a different breaking point. Wouldn't you agree? I think so. What causes us to break and how God breaks us is up to him but you could either break the easy way or the hard way you can either submit early on or you can be like Jonah where you have to go through some hard experiences but notice what he says in verse 1 Jonah prayed to the Lord his God Jonah had fled and tried to hide from God but now he cries out to him And faith enables Jonah to say, as the prodigal son said in, um, oh, that's not right. Just kidding. There we go. In chapter 15, verse 18, I will rise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And so the prodigal son is a story of a 
child who wanted his inheritance early on. And the dad's like, fine, I'll give you his inher- my, your inheritance. He does and blows it. He goes, sleeps around. He spends his money on gambling, everything you can think of. He finds himself sleeping in a pig's trough down at rock bottom. And then finally he says, you know what? I'm going to go to my father's house and say, you know what? I have sinned. And up to this moment, Jonah has not said much. We see his actions more than anything. And the same thing is true for God. We don't see a lot of words being said, but we see a lot of actions being displayed. But here, inside the belly of this fish, we get a glimpse into Jonah's heart, inside of his mind, and the things that are going on. In verse 2 it says, And he cried out to the Lord because of my affliction. We see several things in Jonah's prayer here. Number one, he knew scripture. Throughout the whole entire prayer, it's like he's quoting the Psalms over and over and over and over. He knew the scripture. And the second thing is he didn't ask for anything. His whole entire prayer, he does not ask to be delivered. He doesn't ask for one thing. Now, to me, I I read that and I'm like kind of convicted. I was like, most of my prayers are me asking God for stuff. Wouldn't you agree? Most of our prayers were like, God, would you help me with this? God, would you help me with this? Lord, be with this. And we're always asking. Jonah here doesn't even ask. His prayer, the third thing, consists of a description of his experience, thanksgiving, and a rededication. Notice the word affliction. We see the reason why Jonah cries out to the Lord. He says, because of my affliction. The word affliction means to be in need, distress, anxious, or in trouble. In Psalm 119, 67 says, Behold, I was afflicted. I went astray. Sorry, before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. Jonah went astray before he was afflicted. And because he went astray, that's the reason the affliction came, the discipline of God. And when Jonah says, I cry out because of my affliction, because of my need, the anxiety, the trouble, the distress, I don't think we're much different from Jonah. And in fact, as I've been reading and as I've been studying this portion and even the whole entire book, I keep seeing myself in Jonah. And I don't like that. (laughs) I honestly was like, I don't want to see myself in this guy because this dude was messed up. This guy was rebellious. This guy was stubborn. Yet this book, the purpose is so that we can reflect on the character of God and reflect on our own character. And so when we read about Jonah and the things he does, we have to either humbly admit that we are like him or that we are not. And I thank God that there's this story in here because it has humbled me and it has caused me to be thankful to the Lord because of his grace and mercy in my life. See, I think there's something that we all do that this passage talks about. Jonah cried out to the Lord because he was in a difficult situation. 
We do not pray sometimes until we are in a difficult situation. We don't pray until we are pushed to our limits, possibly, when we're put in a rock in a hard place. When everything's going good and life's fine, life's enjoyable, things are happy, we don't really give God a thought. We don't really pray to the Lord, but it's when we're put in that tight spot, when we are afflicted, when we are distressed, anxious, in trouble, that's when we start to pray. And why is that? Why don't we pray all the time? Why do we have to, or why do we just in general wait till we're in trouble? I think there's multiple reasons, but I think one that comes to my mind is we're looking for a quick fix, a quick solution. And when we find that solution or when we get relief from our troubles, we're like, all right, cool, I'm going to move on now. But God doesn't want to be a quick fix. He doesn't want to be just like, oh, all right, here, you're done. He wants to be a permanent solution in our lives. He wants to be a permanent answer to our prayer requests. He wants to be the source of everything. Forgiveness, love, joy, mercy, grace, you name it. He wants to be the answer to our prayers. And it goes on to say, He answered me. See, every answer to prayer is an act of grace on God's part. Out of the belly of Sheol I cry. Now, what on earth is Sheol? <laughs> what does that mean? That actually refers to the realm of the dead, where one would enter by going through a gate or uh, bars. It can refer to the grave, the afterlife, the underworld, the wasteland. Now, Jonah is not literally praying from the grave. Jonah has not died here. He's just talking about a near-death experience he is having. And he says, You have heard my voice. In the midst of the belly of this fish, God heard Jonah's voice. I don't know if you guys find this comforting. I do. I find it comforting when people actually listen to me and actually hear what I'm saying. And not, I'm not just talking about teaching here. I'm talking in the middle of a conversation with a group of people or with an individual one-on-one -on -one to actually listen. I'm pretty sure most of us have been there where we're talking and telling somebody about something and their eyes are glazed over and they're totally thinking about something else. And they're not even paying attention to what you're saying. And they're like, oh, wait, what'd you say? And you're like, wow, dude. Like, you're not even caring about what I have to say. See, God cares about what Jonah has to say, and he cares about what you have to say, and that's why he listens to us. In Psalm 120, verse 1, my in my distress, I cried to the Lord, and he heard me. I want to remind you, when you are going through a difficult, any difficulty out there, you name it, God is just one step away. God is one prayer away. Just say, God, help me, please. And God wants to listen and come to your assistance. It says in the Psalms that God is near the brokenhearted. And he desires to help. He is a very present help in times of trouble. Psalm 46, verse 1. And so in verses 3 through 7, we see Jonah describes his experience Verse 3, for you've cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea, and the flood waters, or the floods, surround me. 
Jonah recognizes the source of his affliction, the source of his suffering. It was from the Lord. Now, when I say that, you might think, wait a second. God sins us and puts us through suffering? I can't say that for every experience, but God does allow suffering to happen. But it's to accomplish greater purposes. See, one person who suffered even more than Jonah was Job. Job actually was an honored man, and even God boasted about Job. Satan came into God's presence, and God's like, hey, have you looked at my servant Job? And he's like, yeah, but you have a hedge around him. I can't touch him. He goes, what if I take that hedge away? Can, do you think, and, uh, and then Satan says, you know what? I can make him curse you. He goes, you think so? All right, go for it. He takes the hedge away. All of his sons and daughters die. Boils break out on his body. He goes through the worst type of suffering. And all his friends try to comfort him with all these lame encouragements that really are worthless. And Job says in chapter 2, verse 10, Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? Now, if I was Job in that situation, I wouldn't be saying that. I would be like, why, God? Why are you sending me through this? But Job says, if we accept the good, shouldn't we accept the other stuff too? Now, that's a mature mindset to have. I don't know if I even have that mindset. <laughs> I think Job is a very seasoned, experienced, and mature believer to say this. I think it's like Paul the Apostle. All these things that have happened to me is for your good. And those things that come that aren't pleasant, the adversities, the afflictions. God is accomplishing His purposes in and through those things in our lives. It says in Psalms 88, verses 6-7, You have laid me in the lowest pit, in the darkest, and in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Selah. That word selah means to wait, to like meditate, to be still. And so he says, think about this. Your, all your waves or all your billows, that means surf or breaking of waves, and your waves pass over me. And then I said, I have been cast out of your sight. Isn't that interesting? Jonah's prayer is answered. Jonah ran from God and he goes, I don't want to be in your presence. And God's fine. I'll cast you out of my presence. And he sees that now, that he's been cast out of God's presence. I don't know if you've ever prayed a prayer and you're thankful that God didn't answer it. I've prayed many of those. Because you know what? It's a scary thing to pray certain things in different ways and think that God could answer it. He answered Jonah's prayer here. 
He was cast out of the sight of the Lord. And what does Jonah do next? In verse 4, he says, Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. I will look again toward your holy temple. This refers to an ancient practice of praying towards the temple, which is mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 8 and 2 Chronicles chapter 6, also practiced in the book of Daniel chapter uh, 6 as well. And this actually refers to when Solomon built the temple. The temple was a beautiful temple. And he says, when people come to this place to pray and ask for forgiveness, that their prayers would be answered. And see, here is a picture of what is called the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. I had the privilege of going there in 2018, and this is a picture of us praying there. Uh, you can see Jordan, Andy, Ethan, and Mr. Diaz in the picture. And one of the guys in our group asked, like, why do they pray at this wall? Why do they go and all the Jews pray at this specific location? You can see all the paper in the wall. Those are prayer requests stuffed in to the wall. Why do they do that? It's because of these two verses in 1 Kings 8 and 2 Chronicles 6. The wall is actually the only portion that has been uncovered of the temple. That is actually the uh, wall to the temple on the Temple Mount. And that's why they pray to that location. Because of Solomon... And what he said into those two portions of Scripture. An, equi an equivalent verse for us as believers would be 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so Jonah, in the belly of a fish, by faith, turns his eyes and his hearts toward the temple. And God cleanses Jonah and gives him another chance. He says, The, the waters surround me. Even to my soul, the deep closes around me, the seaweed wraps around my head. I went down, and then when it says the mornings or moorings of the mountains, he says, I went down to the roots of the mountains, to the very bottom. He hit rock bottom. The lowest part you can get to. Somebody asked a while back. Do you have to hit rock bottom before you can come to Christ? And the answer is no. You don't have to hit complete rock bottom before turning to the Lord. The Lord desires that we would turn even before that. But some people, like Jonah specifically, is so stubborn that he is not willing to submit that the Lord had to take him to the bottom to break him. And he says, The earth and its bars had closed behind me forever. But notice the next thing in verse 6. Yet you have brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Wait a second. Jonah is in the belly of the fish. How could Jonah say you have brought me up out of this pit? That doesn't make sense. Well, Jonah could say this by faith. And this can be interpreted as saying it by faith or that he has been saved from hell. Jonah has been saved from hell, and by faith, he sees that God will deliver him from this fish. See, God is able to save anyone out of any pit. There is no pit so deep where God's arm cannot reach and pull them out. So many, I think, people 
say, is there a point in people's lives where you've done so many sins that God won't forgive you, that God won't love you? And the answer is no. God is always and ready, to, quick to forgive, more than we are to confess. I, I always love this story, and I heard it, I think, from Pastor Chuck Smith um, as he was teaching through 1 John. And he said this one pastor was arriving to church on a Sunday morning, and like normal, the elders would come out onto the church steps and kind of welcome him as he's coming up. And he did that, and all of a sudden, their faces started to change. He goes, what's going on? And he turns around, and this man is behind him. And he says, can I talk to you after the service, Pastor? And he says, yeah, sure. And then he leaves. And all the elders are like, do you know who that is? And he's like, no, who is it? And it was one of the mob bosses in town who was known for crimes he's committed and terrible things. And they all advised him, do not go to that meeting. And he goes, I'm going to go. I told them I was going to go. I'm going to be there. And they all said, do not go. So after the teaching was done, the guy met him on the, the steps, followed him down an alley, down another alley, through this door, into the mob boss's office, basically. And the mob boss opens the drawer from underneath the cabinet, pulls out a revolver and sets it on the table. And he says, is the things that you say, are they true? He goes, you got, the pastor says, you got to be more specific. What are you talking about? He goes, can I really be forgiven? And he goes, yes. He goes, what if I've cheated on my wife? Can I be forgiven? He says, yes. What if I've been a bad father? Can I be forgiven? He says, yes. And he asks them question after question after question after question. And he keeps saying, the pastor keeps saying, yes, you can be forgiven. And he goes, okay, that's all I wanted to know. And he lets the pastor go free. Later on, apparently, that mob boss gives his heart to the Lord and turns his life around, starts becoming a better husband and a better father. And that's the forgiveness and mercy of God through our lives. There's no pit that's so dark that God can't reach down and pull them out. In verse 7, when my soul fainted within me. That word fainted means to be weak or without strength. And this is the place where God desires that we would all be. He wants us to be weak. He wants us to be in need of him constantly. I was just reading a book by D.L. Moody and D.L. Moody said, we need more weak preachers. And I was like, what? That doesn't make sense. He goes, no, weak men that step in the pulpit in need of God's help and assistance. And I was like, dang, that's good. <laughs> We need to be weak Christians in the sense of constantly depending upon the Lord because I can't live the Christian life without his help. Pastor David said, all ministry or all the Christian life is walking on water. It's impossible. It's impossible without the Lord. Just like Peter walking on the water. He says, my soul is weak. It's fainting. Jonah had finally come to the end of himself. And this is what Alan Redpath says about the pressures and troubles that come to Christians. God's purpose with his people all over the world today and throughout 
or through all the pressures, troubles, and afflictions which are being brought upon us is that we might be brought to the end of our self-confidence where we no longer trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. And that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is all about. Paul says, I've been afflicted, I've suffered, and I've gone through all these things above measure. Something I could not handle. It honestly made me despair of life. But it brought me to the end of myself and caused me to trust in the Lord. And the next thing in verse 7, which I love, he says, I remembered the Lord and my prayers went up to you into your holy temple. In Jonah's jeopardy, he remembered the God who he served, who he is, and reflected on his attributes. If you've never read Psalm 77, I encourage you because it is very insightful. It's a psalm of Asaph, and in this psalm, he kind of expresses his frustration, his anguish, his bitterness of his heart. And he says, even the thought of God makes me sick. It causes me to stay up at night. And he vocalizes all of his fears and concerns in verses 7 through 9. And what really changed is in verse 10, when he says, This is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember the wonders of old. I will meditate on all your works and talk about all your deeds. Notice three times he says, I will remember, I will remember, I will remember. He says, I'm not just going to bring it back to my mind. I'm going to keep it on my mind. The fact that God is good, that he loves me, that he cares about me. And not only that, he says, I'm going to meditate on it. I'm going to chew it over and I'm going to talk and tell other people about it. I've been reading this book by Hudson Taylor called uh, Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. And in the first chapter, uh, it's quite fascinating in uh, my opinion. In the first chapter, he kind of goes on to say at the age of 15, he decided to leave his parents' faith. His mom and dad were both believers. But at the age of 15, he couldn't reconcile certain things. And he decided to give up on God. He goes, I'm done with the Christian life. I'm done with everything. But the cool thing about his story is his mom was on a trip far away somewhere. And all of a sudden, as she was at this location, she was at the dinner table, and she just got this impression upon her heart. She goes, I got to pray for my son, Hudson Taylor. She goes up to her room, locks the door, and says, I'm not going to leave this room until I know my son is okay, that I know he is saved. And so she prays for hours upon hours upon hours until there's no more words that come to her mind. And in the midst of her praying, Hudson Taylor at home is wandering around his house, picks up a track and starts to read it. And then all of a sudden in that moment, he gives his heart to the Lord. And the Lord gives his mom many miles away reassurance in the sense of like, hey, your son's saved. And so when she comes home, his, Hudson comes out and says, mom, I have something to tell you. She goes, you don't need to. I already know because God told me. You're saved. And Hudson Taylor actually became one of the first missionaries to China. 
But before he went as a young man, he fell in love with this girl, fell head over heels for her. She was a good Christian girl. And they talked about their futures constantly. And he constantly talked about how God gave him this burden for China. But she really didn't have that kind of burden. She even asked, can't you serve God here at home and not go to China? And he's like, but God's called me. I know that without a shadow of a doubt that the Lord wants me to go to China. And so you know what he did? He prayed because he believed in the power of prayer that God would change this girl's heart and her mind. But all of a sudden he got a letter one day in the mail that this girl said, you know what, I can't go to China. And it just broke him. And he was like, are, are you kidding me? But then all of a sudden the temptation started to come and said, you know what, why should I go to China? Why should I leave this great life that I have here? If I give up the dream of China right now, I can win her back. I can stay here, provide for a living for myself, and serve the Lord like everyone else does. And he was wrestling in his heart. And he was broken over this. You know what changed his perspective? By doing what Jonah did. By doing what Asaph did in Psalm 77. He remembered the Lord. It says he actually reflected on the love of God and his goodness. And in doing so, he said he experienced the manifestation of God's love in a way like any other way, which caused him to be thankful that God melted his hard heart and reassured his call to China, despite whatever it may hold and whoever goes with him or who doesn't go with him. And he was just reassured of God's goodness and grace and the peace and the, the joy of God was restored. Now, I haven't gotten further into the book to see if she actually goes with him later on or not, but I don't think so. <laughs> My point is, we need to reflect and remember. We need to remember the Lord and reflect on his goodness. How do you do that? By reading the word. By drowning your thoughts with scripture. Read Isaiah chapter 40. Read through the Psalms. Discover how great and glorious our God is. And in verses 8 and 9, we see that Jonah expresses thankfulness. Those who regard worthless idols forsake their own mercy. See, Jonah realized that resisting God and running from Him was like being an idolater. And like Dana said in worship earlier, an idol is anything that you place before God. Jonah was placing his desires and his wants above the Lord's. And he realized that he was wrong. And he says, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay a vow. It's kind of interesting. If you look at the actions of the sailor in uh, chapter 1, and how they were sent through a disaster, they called out to God, they made sacrifices and vows. Now Jonah's actions finally line up with the sailors that got saved. He says, I will make a sacrifice. I will make a vow. 
and keep it. It says in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to him that is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. See, worship isn't about us just watching somebody and listening to them. We're called to offer God and sing to him and thank him to give him a sacrifice of praise. And then he says, salvation is of the Lord. Jonah learned an important lesson that all need to learn is that salvation can only come through the Lord. No one else can save. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No other religion will lead to heaven. All religions lead to God, but how you see God is the difference. All other religions, you'll face God as your judge, but only through Christianity, through the Bible, through Jesus Christ, can you see God as your Father and be delivered from the judgment to come. See, in Jonah's misery, he found the mercy of the Lord. And to be honest, I had a hard time studying this passage because I wrestled and I honestly was reading this and I thought, I was like, Jonah's not repenting. It doesn't really seem like he's genuinely sorrow over his actions. But the Lord reminded me of 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Genuine biblical repentance, that means change, brings about salvation. And what happened to Jonah next? The Lord spoke to the fish and vomited him, or Jonah, under the dry land. This is Jonah's repentance here. Kind of different, kind of odd, but it was repentance. Where did he get vomited? Uh, many people believe Joppa, the place where he actually started to flee from the Lord. But Jonah got himself into this trouble by running from the Lord, being disobedient. He forgot God and he neglected prayer. He forgot God and how gracious God is, but he also forgot how just God is and that God wasn't going to allow him to get away with this. But what got him out of the fish, out of the belly of this fish? By submitting to the Lord in prayer and trusting in God to forgive him. See, I wonder if later on Jonah ever thought, how could God redeem this? I wonder if Jonah said, you know what, I've done some things I regret. And one of those is running from God. How can God ever redeem this? I don't know if Jonah was ever included in on God's plans and purposes. When Jesus uttered the words in the Gospels, but the worst experience of Jonah, his absolute failure, his sin, something that many of us don't even like to think about our failures. We don't like to think about our sins. God redeemed it. God took Jonah's greatest failure and made it a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ which shows us that God can take anything and turn it out for good. God knew he was going to do this all along, but Jonah didn't. 
And that's what it says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 4. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given except the sign of the prophet of Jonah. And he departed. Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. And Jonah, for Jonah, was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. If you think for one moment that God can't use your mistakes and your failures, you're wrong. God took the cross, which is an execution chamber, the worst way to die, and made it the way of salvation. He can change and transform and redeem anything from the ashes. That's the mercy and grace of God. Jonah didn't deserve to be rescued. Jonah deserved possibly die in that fish but God in his mercy and grace delivered him and the last verse I want to leave you with is Psalm 86 verse 5 for you Lord are good ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all who call upon you God is have you ever seen somebody ready maybe you have a little brother or something like that and it's like Disneyland day or you're going to a theme park and they're like super excited and they're like super like just can't wait to go. That's kind of like how God is with forgiveness. He's like, I am ready and I'm willing to forgive, but you gotta ask, you gotta call on me. Salvation belongs to the Lord and he is ready to forgive. He is ready to save and he is ready to give you and pour out his mercy and grace on your life.